about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Hi everyone, I'm Naomi. I'll be reading the first Bible passage for us this evening, which is from Daniel chapter 7, um, starting at verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and and all rulers will worship and obey him. Good evening, my name is Timothy, and the second reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. You can find that on page 1130, which incidentally is about an hour before I normally like to have lunch. Um, this, so the reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, found on page 1130, and we'll start at verse 1. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. 
Now it is required that those who have been given trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For what makes you different from anyone else? What have you that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings. And that without us. How I wish you had, that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work hard with our own hands. We are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He'll remind you in my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Well, good evening, uh, everyone. My name is David. I'll be your preacher. It wasn't that fun. So. <clears throat> According to Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So as I was preparing for tonight, I found these for you. Laughter is the best medicine, unless you're laughing for no reason. Then you need to take medicine. <laughs> Laughter is the best medicine, except for treating diarrhoea. If laughter is the best medicine and marijuana makes you laugh, then marijuana must be the best medicine. I think that was put up by a, a voter for the Greens Party. <coughs> well, those dad jokes, uh, the spoonful of sugar tonight, because we have some serious medicine to take. We're going to look at the topic of apostolic authority. An apostolic authority is like strong medicine for a serious disease. 
Strong medicine comes with warnings. You must take the correct dosage, must be used only with prescription, and you have to be mindful that there may well be side effects involved. In chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, our second Bible reading, Paul warns the Corinthians that they need to take medicine to avert the disease that has infected their culture and their character. And that disease is called worldly wisdom. The treatment for worldly wisdom, that prescribed by the Lord Jesus, is for the church to attend appropriately to apostolic authority. Now, in order to be aware of the correct dosage uh, and these possible side effects involved, I want to ask three questions tonight. Firstly, what constitutes apostolic authority? What does apostolic authority look like uh, in practice? And thirdly, what difference does it make? So what constitutes it? What does it look like in practice? And what difference does it make? That's our shape for tonight. So what constitutes apostolic authority? The chief characteristic that designates someone with apostolic authority is that they were personally commissioned by Jesus of Nazareth to be a mediator of his words and deeds to the world. Personally commissioned. Listen to this from Luke chapter 6 verse 13. After praying all night, when morning came, Jesus called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them whom he had designated as apostles. Now, literally, an apostle is someone sent, a messenger, a delegate, a representative. What distinguishes between apostles is who sends them. The apostles of Jesus Christ are commissioned by him, the one to whom God has given all authority in heaven and on earth, according to Matthew chapter 28. Now, as you may well know, one of the original 12, a man called Judas Iscariot, conspired with the authorities to arrange for Jesus' arrest and eventual execution. This Judas, on realising the guilt he had committed, killed himself. He committed suicide. But the 11 remaining apostles decided that they should choose a replacement by casting lots. They cast lots uh, on the common, uh, commonly held Jewish assumption that God determines the outcome uh, of such uh, a decision. So the replacement for Judas would be chosen by God in exactly the same way uh, that the rest of them were. So as the apostles find a replacement, we're back to 12 again, 12 people chosen by Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Lord. Now, we as readers discover at the same time that there are actually certain qualifications for one to be given this ministry of apostleship. And we can read that uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 21. There, Peter says, It's necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one from one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. 
So on the basis of the Lord Jesus makes this ultimate decision, the 11 original apostles gather together a 12th through the choice of the Lord Jesus, a suitable eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus and the number is complete. Now, the more experienced Bible readers among you uh, will no doubt uh, point out that Paul, who wrote the letter 1 Corinthians that we've been reading, he was not one of the original 12. And yet frequently in the New Testament, he's referred to as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The man formerly known as Saul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians there when he was confronted by the risen Jesus. We can read about that in Acts chapter 9. Here's Paul's account. As I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So having been blinded by the encounter, Paul was led into Damascus and a Christian man there told him, Brother Saul, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. So Jesus especially intervenes in the life of this persecutor of Christians and Saul, the Pharisee, becomes Paul, the apostle of Christ. It was a burden, actually, that Paul carried for his whole life. Frequently uh, throughout his letters, he'll refer to the fact that though he was a persecutor of the church, Christ intervened in his life and personally chose him to bear witness to the risen Lord Jesus. Now, at the same time, the 12 apostles uh, back in Jerusalem, they agreed that Paul should have a special uh, mission to the Gentiles, for he was likewise, like them, directly uh, commissioned by the Lord Jesus. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 2. There Paul says, God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in me, an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter and John, those esteemed pillars of the church, gave me the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we we should go to the Gentiles and they would go to the Jews. So, apostolic authority rests on divine commission. That the risen Lord Jesus chose these men and no others and invested them with authority to speak his words to all other people, believers and unbelievers alike. They have God's authority. Now, when you think about it, that's a situation that's entirely alien to our modern Western notion of democracy. It's tone deaf to our egalitarian demands for meritocracy. It's a world away from what's trending on Twitter and Facebook. And it's totally oblivious to the Disneyland ethics of setting your heart on a dream. Apostolic authority comes from one source and one source alone, the risen Lord Jesus. The one who was described as the early church fathers as the great physician 
commissioned these and only these as his speakers, as his representatives, with his authority. Now, of course, it doesn't, that doesn't stop people from trying to grasp for it by force if necessary, whether it's the so-called infallible papal claims to apostolic succession or the power ministries of megachurch pastors, Christians have, down through the centuries, cloaked all kinds of worldly concepts of authority in the guise of serving the Lord. And that's our cue to go to the text of 1 Corinthians that we've been reading together in church for the last few weeks. In tonight's reading, turn it up now, make sure you've got it there, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In tonight's reading, Paul broaches the subject of his particular relationship with the Corinthians and as he does so, we get an explicit statement of what apostolic authority looks like in action. What does it look like in action? Well, the short answer is that apostolic authority looks exactly like the ministry of Jesus who commissioned it. Apostolic authority, true apostolic authority, looks exactly like the ministry of Jesus who commissioned it in the first place. Chapter 4, verse 1. Look at how Paul begins there. This, then, is how you ought to regard us. Now, that this there refers to a remark that Paul's made earlier in uh, chapter 3, verse 23. There he writes, No more boasting about human leaders. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So, in chapter 4, verse 1, regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, throughout the first four chapters uh, of this letter, Paul's been dealing with factionalism in the church at Corinth. There are divisions in the community, but the divisions are focused on particular leader figures who've been present in the church at one time or another, whether it was Paul who founded the church or Apollos, who seems to have turned up uh, a little bit later and done some uh, great preaching there, or possibly even Peter, although it's not quite clear what his connection actually is to the church. Nevertheless, everybody's got a guy. I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Kephas, like teenagers in the playground arguing over footy teams. But Paul says the Corinthians ought to be united in the message of the cross, which is a completely counterintuitive lens through which to view the world. It's foolishness and weakness. Yet in God's mysterious ways, it's the means through which the message of the cross imparts to us righteousness and holiness and redemption. These are the mysteries to which Paul refers to in chapter 4, verse 1, and they're essential for judging correctly what apostolic authority should look like. See, Paul goes on in verse 2 to re-engage with this issue of scrutinising the faithfulness of leaders. If you look back in chapter 3, verse 12 to 15, he's already covered something like this. Those building on a foundation in Christ will have their uh, work tested as if by fire. In the light of this, in chapter 4, verse 2, we read this. Look at it there. Those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. 
Now, here's the thing. Paul is not especially worried about how others judge his work, since it is the Lord who judges me, Paul says in verse 4. He was, as I mentioned earlier, personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus. And so, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to hold off in their judgments for that very reason. But, it, but it's very important for you to grasp the weight of what Paul is saying here. Basically, he's saying to them, friends, back off. Stand down. Step aside. I am not accountable to you. I'm accountable to the Lord who commissioned me. That's awkward. Back off, says the leader to his church. I've had leadership positions in churches on and off for the past 25 years now. And I've always worked on the principle that if I had to remind people that I had authority over them, in fact, I had none. But I was never personally confronted by the risen Lord Jesus. I was never face to face with the one who rules over all things and who said to me, David Honey, I want you to go here and do this. Well, small wonder I had no authority over people. But Paul does. And so he can say to these people, hold off. Paul exhorts the Corinthians to hold off. Look at it there in verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, throughout the last three chapters, Paul has been describing to the Corinthians the wisdom of the cross when it comes to discerning the Christian qualities of leadership. And they should pay attention to this to avoid being puffed up or conceited. See, the preaching of the cross has been Paul's modus operandi, authenticated by the power of the Spirit. It's mentioned, Paul mentions it in chapter 2, verse 3. Just look back there or scroll up or flick back or whatever it takes to get you to that spot. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's great power. And this is why it's so hard for the Corinthians to grasp the truth about apostolic ministry. The outwardly unimpressive nature of Paul's ministry is exactly what the power of the Spirit achieves. Now, superficially, that makes almost no sense. Paul is most powerful. God's Spirit is most strongly at work when this possibly skinny little Jewish guy with a hooked nose Faultingly, faultingly, like that, tries to announce the gospel of God. 
How could that be? How could that be God's power? Well, Paul says that's exactly the power in which Jesus of Nazareth gave himself up to death on a cross. That, that's real power. Not just bigger than any of us power. That's divine power. And it takes the work of the Spirit to grasp that. That's what Paul talks about in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. Real power is where the Son of God comes into the world, takes on flesh like ours and allows his creatures to lift him up onto a tree and drive ten pegs into his hands, having beaten him almost senseless and saves them from the sin they commit as they kill him. That's real power. The real power of God who allows himself to suffer death and then three days later says, all right, that's it, it's over. No more. That is the power that is at work in the apostles. It isn't the power of great armies or great monuments of marble. It isn't the power of fine rhetoric or philosophical banter or heartwarming stories. It's the supreme power of a single man publicly executed for insurrection, naked, bloodied and beaten at the hands of those he came to save. It's the power of absolute self-sacrifice to the will of God for the salvation of others. This is the source of apostolic authority that Paul has received. This is where he gets his commission from and therefore his authority. And so Paul picks this up. Look there at chapter 4, verse 9 and following. The Corinthians rule and the apostles are like prisoners dragged into the circus in a triumphal procession to accentuate the, the domination that they suffer. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings, writes Paul. Now Paul may be combining uh, a couple of images here. Firstly, there's the image uh, of the Roman conquering general who comes back uh, from Bavaria or barbarians or fighting the Goths or wherever it is and drags his conquered captives along behind his chariot. They're chained up, humiliated, they're drawn through the city in a long chain so that everybody can bow down and worship the great general and throw rotten fruit at the uh, losers. They're brought into the circus, into the middle of the arena and then summarily put to death to show them that Rome rules. And Paul grabs that kind of image and puts the apostles in the chain gang. That's our position, says Paul, in relation to you, the church. Now, the other image uh, that may well be a play here uh, comes from Daniel 12. That was our first reading. And there the prophet foresees the end time uh, solution of God's kingdom where one like a son of man who's a, an image for Jesus now rules completely over all the universe. 
but God's people are gathered up with him to share in that rule. And so we read in uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse, uh, sorry, Daniel 7, verse 27. You, you may not have noticed it. It was the last verse, I think. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the rulers will worship and obey him. Paul is saying, You have all that, you rule. All is for you. Whatever is going on in Paul's mind, uh, from verse 10 to 13, chapter 4 outlines for us a very cruciform nature of Paul's ministry as an apostle. Look at it there in verse 13. When cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. What Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to grasp hold of, what he's trying to explain to them, is that apostolic authority looks and feels exactly like the ministry of Jesus the Christ. That's how you tell what an apostle is. That's how you tell the genuineness of apostolic authority. That's how you tell it's the real deal, the real McCoy, the OG. Because the apostles minister like Jesus who saved them. That's where their authority comes from. So... We've got a sense of what constitutes apostolic authority and we've got a sense now of what it looks like. What difference does it make? Well, it's fast approaching the time for the Corinthians to take their medicine as we get a sense uh, later on in chapter 4 because they have this serious disease called worldliness and the apostolic authority concerning the Christian life is the treatment for their disease. Look at what Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 16. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. And as it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. Now, as he mentions in chapter 4, verse 14, Paul writes all this not to shame the Corinthians, but to warn them. They need warning. That's the tone that the doctor uses when he discovers you have a life-threatening illness. You need to do something about this. Soon. Now. The Corinthians are well off. They're in a vibrant city. They're a church full uh, of cosmopolitan delights as part of the centre of the empire. It's cool to be Corinthian. However, there is a great cost to all these marvellous opportunities. You see, instead of being trained in the wisdom of the cross, the Corinthians are soaking up all the wisdom that the world has to offer, especially about leadership and authority. 
Like all sinners, the Corinthians want leaders who make them feel good about themselves. They want the kind of populist leaders that are currently on display in the lead-up to the American presidential elections. Instead of listening to the authority that reveals their vulnerability before God and the world. See, populist leaders tell you what you deserve. But apostolic leaders tell you what you desperately need. Populist leaders will tell you what you deserve. But apostolic authority puts before you what you desperately need. It comes down to the nature of the relationship that Paul has with this church and the actual importance of being a servant of Christ. In Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel, Paul says in verse 15 and 16, which means that the Corinthians ought to imitate Paul's way of life in service of the Lord Jesus. Now, this may seem to contradict uh, what Paul has been saying about uh, leaders and servants and about their relative importance. After all, in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes, What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned each to his task. See, it's as if Paul is saying to the Corinthians, I don't think you really understand the gravity of this situation. You need to take your medicine. You need to wise up. But not in the way that feels, makes you feel good about yourself because I'm not that kind of leader. I have a message from the Lord Jesus for you that will save your life. And I'm prepared to spend my life to help you get it. Paul is the one who planted the church in Corinth. But more than this, Paul, unlike Apostle, unlike Apollos, sorry, is an apostle of the Lord Jesus, personally commissioned to preach the gospel of Christ crucified to the Gentiles. The Corinthians must listen to him because to cut themselves off from Paul is to cut themselves off from Christ. See, the the Corinthians can't take seriously Jesus' promise that their sins will be forgiven if they don't take seriously the agent that Jesus has commissioned to share that gospel with them. And it's going to be tough to take. Throughout the rest of the letter, Paul's going to subject to scrutiny their attitude towards love, their attitude towards each other, their attitudes towards their freedom, their riches, to marriage and singleness, to family, Paul is going to subject all of that to scrutiny and it's going to feel like taking strong medicine. But it's the medicine that saves your life given to you by someone who is prepared to spend his life for you. And what about us? What difference does all this make to us? You may not realise it, but we are Gentiles So Paul is our apostle. His words to the Corinthians could easily be words to us. 
And we need to respond to those words with the expectation that Jesus himself will guide and govern us through them. You see, we live in a pretty hip place, pretty cosmopolitan, kind of like Corinth. We have better coffee than Corinth, but we even have it here in our own building. We have that seal of approval that separates King Street from any other street in the city. It's cool to be a Christian in Newtown. And you all look cool. Coming to church like this is great for me, an old dog. Everybody's 25 and beautiful. My wife fits in perfectly. But the prospect of apostolic authority is going to mean strong medicine for us too. Because there's every chance that the disease of worldliness that the Corinthians suffer, it could be right here in this building amongst these people. Our culture in the 21st century world of romance, treats authority like a bitter pill to swallow. We're governed by desire, where truth is measured by the depth of feeling on the one hand and the power of those feelings to give me the ability to achieve the kind of authenticity that my dreams dictate. My feelings are the true source of my rights, that other great shibboleth of social interaction. My passions shape the dreams I have for myself and all those people and things that make up my relations of concern, the things in which I emotionally invest in in order to achieve Project Me. You may not like that, but I have an answer. Don't judge me. And if you really disagree with me, well, then we all know what that is, don't we? You're a hater. So the prospect of apostolic authority, a voice that might subject us to scrutiny, that might second-guess our plans or challenge our assumptions, well, we've been trained to react to Paul in the same way that anyone might react to scrutiny, to second-guessing. Don't you judge me. You're a hater, Paul. And it happens all the time. Some Christians take the passive-aggressive approach. They just never read the Bible, so they never have to come up against Paul. Others... They take the selective approach. Yeah, I'll read chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, and of course chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Everybody loves that. It's all about love. But the rest, yeah, not so good on that. You're wrong, Paul. But that puts us exactly the same spot that the Corinthians were. You cannot take seriously Jesus' promise of forgiveness for your sins if you do not take seriously the agent's who spread that message to you. 
That's awkward, isn't it? We're going to go through the rest of Corinthians and the themes of our culture will come up. That love wins. That you can't control who you love. That freedom is my birthright. All those things are going to come up in the next 12 chapters of 1 Corinthians. And Paul's answer will be, the wisdom of the cross is yours. Jesus died to give it to you. You must listen. You must hear him. It might be painful. And it may well have radical side effects on your life. But Paul is not the kind of radicaliser that wants to destroy you, like other religious radicals that we see in the popular media. Paul is the radical who dies for you because Jesus died for all of us. We must, must listen to the authority that Jesus has given his servants. For to us, it is salvation and life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's hard to hear your voice sometimes. Our ears feel too full. Our hearts are too restless. And sometimes we're just too afraid. And yet, Lord Jesus, we know that you give us these words to save us, that you spent your life for us to transform us and that you are ready and waiting to empower us with your spirit to live them. Lord, incline our hearts to your voice. For Jesus' sake we pray. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.